You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read together verse 22 through the end of the chapter of John 10. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you... Being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we thank you again for your word, and we recognize that your word is so so deep and so profound and so beautiful, and there are things in here which even after hours and hours of study, they simply elude our grasp and our understanding. We thank you that your word is that deep, but it is also understandable. And we know that your word is truth. We know that your word is is glorious and it is holy and it is pure and it is alive and it is relevant. And so we do not pray that you would make your word alive to us, for it already is, but that you would open our eyes to that reality. Help us to, in our study today of your word, to walk away with an appreciation for Christ, a love for the Word, both incarnate and written, that you might be glorified in and through our hearts and our obedience to you. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John chapter 10, verse 22, would be a good place to put a chapter division. I've mentioned before that sometimes the chapter divisions are not all that helpful. Sometimes they are very helpful. This is one of those instances where the chapter division in chapter 10 is not all that helpful. So if you wouldn't mind just scribbling out the 10 that is there and moving it over to between verses 21 and 22 and write the number 10 there and then renumber everything around it, it kind of helps put in your mind that there is a break. I'm just joking about that. There is a break between verses 21 and 22. Uh, It is a break in John's Gospel because there is a two-month gap there. Remember, everything. uh, chapter 10, verse 21 ends what is a long section of text, but really a short period of time in the life of Jesus probably only spanning about two weeks, going back to the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, verse 21, covers events in the temple in and around Jerusalem surrounding 
the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 22, John fast-forwards two months to the next feast, the Feast of the Dedication. Now, you may have heard me say in times past, in probably recent weeks, that there is a six-month gap between verses 21 and 22. That's wrong. I don't know how six months got into my noggin, but somehow in putting together the structure and the chronology of everything, six months stuck in my mind between verses 21 and 22. And in studying this week, I, I realized that's not six months, that's two months. I don't know what I was thinking. You ever had that happen? You think something and then suddenly you realize, what was, what was I thinking? How did I get six out of two? So my apologies to you, that was wrong. My apologies to you specifically if you wrote in your margin six months between verses 21 and 22. I hope you can change that six to a two. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place in the Jewish month of Tishri, which is our month of September-October, depending on how the calendars overlap in any given year. The month of the, the Feast of Dedication takes place in the month of Kislev, always celebrated on the 25th of Kislev, and that is our month of November or December, depending on how the calendars overlap. So there's a two-month gap there. The Feast of Dedication is how John sort of introduces us to this next um, this next section or this next conversation. And though there's a two-month gap there, listen, there is overlap of subject matter, which you can see by looking at verses 26 and 27. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I know them. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we are returning, Jesus is at least returning, to this discussion of the good sheep and the good shepherd. So though there's a two-month gap, there is an overlap of subject matter. And sometimes the gospel writers do this. They will, and you've got to keep this in mind, not everything in the gospels is strictly chronological. Sometimes the gospel writers, in the freedom to, to give us the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, will sometimes compile things by theme. And that's what John is doing here. He ends the Good Shepherd Discourse in verse 21, and then he fast-forwards two months to give us this next conversation, which really returns to the previous conversation that he had with the Jews in verse 21. There's a lot of overlap here. For instance, in chapter in verse 22, the people that Jesus is talking to is the same group that he is addressing in the first half of the chapter, the hostile Pharisees, the Jews mentioned in chapter 9, verse 40, who said to them, we're not blind also, are we? And you remember then the Good Shepherd Discourse is given to those unbelieving, hostile Jews. The Jews, again, likely this same group of Pharisees is addressed in the second half of chapter 10 as well. Not only is it the same people that is addressed, keep in mind that both of these addresses or both of these conversations happen around feasts. Furthermore, both of these conversations happen in Jerusalem. And not only that, but both of these conversations have to do with Jesus' identity. At the end of chapter 9, the man who was once born blind bowed down and he worshipped Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord? And Jesus said to him, I am the Son of Man. And the man who was once who was once blind bowed down and worshipped him. And then, so the question obviously is, who is this one who is the Son of Man that a man would worship? And that's what gives us the Good Shepherd Discourse. He is the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd of Israel. He was Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is Israel's God, their shepherd, their deliverer. And because he is God, the man born blind is completely appropriate to worship him. This second discussion also takes place around the question of Jesus' identity because they gathered around him in the temple and they asked him, why do you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So now the question is, are you the Christ? And if so, tell us publicly, tell us openly. So both of these conversations have to do with Jesus' identity. And really that has been the question all the way through the Gospel of John. Time and again, we see people asking him, who are you? Are you greater than Moses? Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than Jacob? Who, who are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
And again, that's the question in the second half of the 10th chapter. Now, I mentioned there's two months' time between verse 21 and verse 22. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, periodically we get to these gaps of time, and I have tried to take from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and tried to tell you what it is that fits into these periods of time where John doesn't give us any information to kind of harmonize the Gospels. I want to do that with these two months, but here's the issue with these two months. These two months are very mysterious two months. And here's why. I have on my shelf two books, Harmonies of the Gospel, where they take all four of the Gospels and they try to kind of harmonize them, put them in parallel form and put them all together so that it kind of reads like one story all the way through, pulling from all four Gospels. I have two of them, one an older book, one a more modern book. Both of those Harmonies of the Gospel place Luke chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, those four chapters, in these two months. Other historical resources that I have say that Luke 10 through 13 occurs at some other time in the life of Jesus, not during these two months. John MacArthur, for instance, in his commentary said, none of the gospel writers cover anything that goes on in these two months period of time. So I don't know whether Luke 10 through 13 fits into this. Some people say it does. Or if it doesn't fit into this, some people say it doesn't. But if Luke 10 through 13 fits into this two month period of time, I'll tell you what happens in Luke 10 through 15, uh, 10 through 13. Here are the events that some people say may have happened during this period of time. Jesus sent out the 72. Do you remember that? Commissioned the 72 and they came back to him. That's in Luke chapter 10. The Pharisees asked Jesus a testing question. In response to that, Jesus gave them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was at the home of Mary and Martha. That was when Martha was really busy preparing and Mary was just kind of hanging out and Jesus sort of rebuked Martha. That would have happened during these two months. Jesus gave some teaching on prayer. He healed a demoniac. There is a discussion of the source of his power because that is when the Pharisees uh, charged him with doing that by the power of Beelzebub. And so then Jesus had the teaching on the unforgivable sin and their charge against him that he did this under the power of Beelzebub. There's teaching on worldliness and spiritual alertness. Jesus healed the crippled woman who had been bent over for 18 years. And then there is some teaching on parables in the kingdom. Now, if Luke 10 through 13 fits into those two months, then that's what Jesus was doing. Some people put Jesus in Jerusalem for those two months. Some people put Jesus sort of out about in the areas around Jerusalem, like in the home of Mary and Martha for those two months. Some people say he went back up north into Galilee for those two months and then came back down into Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. Ultimately, we have no degree of absolute certainty regarding any of that. Which, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? Is there really degrees of absolute certainty? There's not. If you're absolutely certain, so that was a stupid thing to say. We have no degree, any degree of certainty regarding any of that. We're not absolutely certain what happened during those two months, but it's possible that those four chapters of Luke fit into there. So now, the Feast of Dedication in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Now, those are the type of verses that we like to read over and just say, okay, okay, now I'm getting to the meat of it, right? The meat, the meat is the question they ask. Actually, as we've seen so many times in the Gospel of John, there is a ton of meat just in verses 22 and 23. There's some profound stuff there. Actually, some profound stuff that we have to understand in order to appreciate everything that is to follow. So we're going to unpack verses 22 and 23 today. It was the Feast of Dedication. Now, how many of you have heard of or are familiar with the details of the Feast of Dedication, why the Jews celebrated it, and what it was a celebration of? Raise your hand. One? Okay, good. Yeah, I, I really wasn't too familiar with it before this last week either. How many of you have heard of Hanukkah? Everybody. 
It's one and the same. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. So I'm going to tell you today about Hanukkah and how it came to be. This is the, the Feast of Dedication is the celebration of Hanukkah. It is interesting in John's Gospel how he kind of constructs his entire Gospel around the feasts that he mentions. We saw this in chapter 2. We see it in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 10, and even in chapter 12 in the future when he says in chapter 12, verse 1, that it was six days until Pentecost. John mentions these feasts, I believe, not just sort of in passing, oh yeah, it was another feast, as if we're supposed to just read over it. He gathers all of his gospel material around these feasts. So he mentions that it is a feast, and then he tells us Jesus did this, and he said that, and we are to read and understand the events that he mentions surrounding those feasts in light of the feast itself. So that's what we want to do. We want to be able to read the rest of chapter 10 in light of the significance of the Feast of Dedication, because I'm going to show you before we leave today that understanding the Feast of Dedication adds an entirely new dimension to all of the conversation that follows verse 22. Because John constructs his gospel around these feasts. He mentions the feast, tells us what Jesus did and said, so we are to read all of that and understand all of that in light of the feasts themselves. Hanukkah takes place toward the end of our year. It's actually, as I mentioned, always celebrated on the 25th day of Kislev. Now, Kislev is the month of November or December, um, depending on how it overlaps, because the Jews have a different uh, different length to their year than we do. The Jews also celebrate or reconcile leap years, not celebrate, but they reconcile with leap years differently than we do. So every year, their 25th day of Kislev is different in our calendar, and it kind of bounces around a lot. For instance, in 2008, Hanukkah was on December 22nd. So sometimes Hanukkah can be very close to our Christmas holiday. And interestingly enough, and this is a discussion for another time, there are a lot of Christmas, Western Christmas traditions and ideas that have kind of crept into the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, right? Celebrating the birth of Jesus has kind of bled over into Hanukkah, much to the dismay of many Orthodox Jews who say, no, we don't want anything to do with those elements of it. Let's purists, let's keep the holiday pure. In December of, uh, in 2011, Hanukkah was on December 21st. Interestingly enough, this year, December of, uh, uh, 2013, Hanukkah is not in December, but it's in November, and it's going to be on November 28th, Thursday, which is our Thanksgiving. So our Thanksgiving is going to coincide with the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah this year. Also interestingly, Ju- uh, John 10 verse 22 is the only reference to Hanukkah in all of the New Testament, or the Feast of Dedication. Not only that, this is the only reference to Hanukkah in all of Scripture because the events that instituted the Feast of Hanukkah took place between the completion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, a period of time 400 years long that we refer to as the 400 silent years. During those 400 years, God was not giving any revelation. There were no prophets. Nobody was inscripturating anything. But there were, of course, events in the life of the Jewish people around which Hanukkah was sort of birthed out of. I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. So this is the only mention in all of Scripture of Hanukkah, chapter 10, verse 22. What is interesting is this. Why was Jesus celebrating what we would call a man-made feast? Because Hanukkah is not one of the God-ordained or God-instituted feasts from the Old Testament, like Passover or the Feast of Booths or um, uh, the Feast of uh, Trumpets or anything that is given to us in the book of Leviticus. This is a man-made feast not a God-ordained feast. So then we ask the question, why is it that Jesus was celebrating in Jerusalem this man-made feast? Furthermore, why was he in the temple during this man-made feast? And was Jesus celebrating there? And what was he doing there? 
Those are the questions we want to ask. So in order to tell you about Hanukkah, we need to go back in time, not to Huey Lewis, but before Huey Lewis, to Alexander the Great. Now, him you have heard of. Uh, he is was a young Macedonian general who lived during this 400 silent years, uh, I think 250 to 300 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, Alexander the Great conquered all of the then-known world around Israel by the time that he was 33 years of old. He had subjugated all of that territory around that. Now, Alexander had a philosophy. He was not just a ruthless military leader. He was also a very wise diplomat. And here was Alexander the Great's philosophy. His goal was to create a one-world people. He knew that the best thing to do to keep the United Kingdom was to get everybody to speak the same language, enjoy the same customs, practice the same culture, worship the same gods, enjoy the same pleasures. And so he sought to Hellenize or to make Greek all of the various nations that he conquered. His goal was to make them very Greek in their culture because if he could get one worship, one religion, one people, one language, all of that, he would have a better chance of keeping his kingdom together with all of these diverse peoples. There was one little sliver of land filled with ruthlessly monotheistic, culturally separate people that stood in the path of Alexander the Great doing that. And that was the Jews. By the way, that is one of the reasons why God gave them a lot of those, what we would consider to be quirky laws in the Old Testament, to keep them separate. No mixed fabrics, no planting multiple different types of seeds in the same field, all of those things. They were intended to make the Jews unique so that they could not be easily assimilated into all of the cultures and the culture could not easily assimilate into their religion and water it down and dilute them as a people. Well, that is exactly what happened during this period of time. The Jews did not assimilate easily. Well, Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years old and his kingdom did not last long. In fact, it didn't even last but a few moments. Because the kingdom was divided into four different parts. And all four of Alexander the Great's leading generals each took a section of the kingdom and began to rule. Two of those kingdoms are kind of small. They're rather insignificant historically. But two of them that do pertain to our discussion here today was the Ptolemaic kingdom, which was to the north and east of the land of Israel. Its headquarter was in Syria, Antioch of Syria. To the south and to the west of Israel in Alexandria, Egypt was, sorry, that's the Ptolemaic kingdom, Egypt. South and west. The Seleucid or the Syrian kingdom was north and to the east. Now these two kingdoms were the two biggest of those four that, uh, that resulted from Alexander's uh, demise. Those two kingdoms fought and warred constantly. They were always at each other's throat. And right between those two capitals, if you went across around the land to get to each other, you get, guess what was right in the middle of it? The land of Israel. So that was the battlefield for most of these, these wars between the Seleucid kingdom in the northeast and the Ptolemaic kingdom in the southwest in Alexandria, Egypt. The Jews really got along hard when a certain man named Antiochus IV took the throne in Antioch of Syria. Antiochus IV became king of the Syrian kingdom in 175 B.C. Antiochus nicknamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes, and the name Epiphanes means manifest God. So he dubbed himself God. He called himself Antiochus Manifest God. Now that's... Quite a nickname, right? A self-approbation if there ever was one. He thought very highly of himself, to say the least. Many of the people in his kingdom, his dissenters, called him Antiochus Epimenes, which was kind of a little play on the sound of his name. Epimenes means madman. So he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. Other people called him Antiochus Madman. I just love that. That's just such a, one of those unique things of history. You can be careful what you name your kids, right? Because when you name your kids something weird, 
People are going to tease them about it. Well, Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Antiochus IV. In 168 BC, he decided that he was going to head down through Israel into the land of Egypt, and he was going to try and once and for all subjugate the Egyptian or the Ptolemaic kingdom to the south. So he headed down through the land of Israel. He got to the Ptolemaic border, and he was and he had several military victories. And he thought, okay, this is this is it. I am going to finally be able to conquer the southern kingdom, unite the two of them, and he would sort of be following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great in bringing all these people back under his power. That was his goal. So he had some military victories. It all looked good. It looked like he was about ready to thrust the dagger into the heart of the Ptolemaic kingdom to the south. And then he got a message from a military power to the west, the Romans. And the Romans said, get out of Egypt, stay out of Egypt, go back home, and if you don't, you will face our military. Now, Antiochus knew that he could not defeat both the Ptolemaic military and the Roman military that far from home on Ptolemaic soil. So he did what any wise general would do. He turned around and he went back to Syria in basically humiliation and defeat. Now, Antiochus was infuriated. He was embarrassed. He was disappointed. He was as angry as a mad hatter. He, uh, he was just upset about this. When he got into the land of Egypt, uh, Israel, he decided that he was going to vent his anger and his frustration on the Jews. Now, this group of people had never really fully Hellenized, fully accepted and embraced Greek culture. So Antiochus stopped in the land of Israel and said, all right, I am going to put down once and for all, in the most oppressive way possible, this Jewish religion. He decided that he was going to eradicate the Jewish people of their religion and force them to become Greeks to Hellenize them. So Antiochus made it illegal to practice some of the central tenets of the Jewish faith. For instance, he made it illegal to circumcise boys on the eighth day. He made the observance of the Sabbath illegal, the daily uh, daily offerings in the temple illegal. He made the celebration of feasts illegal, and he made it illegal to own or to read or to carry or have in your possession a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. And he instituted worship of Zeus, the Greek god, the chief of the Greek gods, in each of the cities and around, in the city of Jerusalem and in each of the cities around the city of Jerusalem. And sort of the, 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 the worst of it all, the, the coup de grace or the heart and the, the stake in the heart of the nation of Israel, he went in on the 25th day of Kislev, which according to some sources was Antiochus's birthday. On the 25th day of Kislev, he went into the Jewish temple, he stole all of the ornaments, all of the decorations, all of the implements of their worship. He took all of those out, burned the doors, tore down all of the curtains, and he set up a pagan idol over top of the Jewish altar. He hung an image of Zeus in the temple, and according to one historical source, that image of Zeus had the facial features of Antiochus Epiphany, because he declared himself to be God in this Jewish temple. You can imagine, this really got up the nose of the Jews. They didn't like this at all. And on that altar in the Jewish temple, he sacrificed a pig, And he spread the blood of that pig all over the temple, all of its entrails all over the temple, and he desecrated the Jewish temple with swine's blood, and then he forced the people of Jerusalem to eat swine's flesh and to worship Zeus. And if they didn't, he killed them. He destroyed large sections of the city of Jerusalem. He slaughtered wholesale men, women, and children, anybody who would not worship Zeus and bow down to the image that he set up in the temple. Daniel had actually prophesied that back in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, where Daniel says of Antiochus, forces, he doesn't name Antiochus, but he describes this coming leader who would bring this persecution to the Jewish people. Daniel 11, 31, forces from him will rise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. 
and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now that might sound familiar because Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation, which was to come future to Jesus. And he speaks of the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple to be worshipped in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 or 2. One of those two. Is, it's in Second Thessalonians. So Antiochus really, prophetically speaking, is merely a forerunner, a foreshadowing of a future Antichrist, the future Antichrist who will come to the nation of Israel. So Antiochus is kind of the shadow of the Antichrist to come, and his persecution of the Jewish people is a shadow of what is yet to come. That's why some of that wording, like and the abomination of desolation, why that sounds familiar, because Daniel mentions that, Jesus mentions that, and that's what Antiochus did, actually. Now, one of the things that after he did this desecration of the temple, and as I said, his, his, his goal was to completely eradicate the Jewish God and to make the practice of their religion impossible. And by desecrating the Jewish temple the way that he did, the Jews stopped worshiping. They would not even go into the temple because it had been defiled by that swine's blood. Now, Antiochus was not satisfied with doing this just in Jerusalem. He sent detachment of troops out into the surrounding villages to sort of do the same thing all over again in each of the little cities of the villages. His troops would go out there and they would set up a pagan altar in the middle of the town. They would gather the townspeople around, put a swine on the altar, and then demand that the people, under penalty of death, sacrifice the, the swine and then stick around and eat the swine's blood. And they did this, forcing this to happen in all of the cities and the worship of Zeus, the swine was to be offered on the altar to Zeus. So one of Antiochus's detachment of troops went out into one of the little surrounding villages named Modin, which was 17 miles west of Jerusalem. And they got to the city of Modin, they did just this. They set up the altar, they put the swine on it, they gathered the townspeople around, and this detachment of troops, the captain of those troops, found a, a man who was a retired priest of the Most High God there in the city. He was a civil leader. He singled him out, this old retired priest. His name was Mattathias. And they said to Mattathias, you need to sacrifice the pig on the altar, worship Zeus, and then you will lead the people in eating the swine's flesh. And Mattathias refused to do this. And the detachment of troops and the captain of the guard reminded him, if you do not do this, you will die. And Mattathias was steely-eyed and he refused to do this. And he stood his ground. Until one of these Hellenized, were very Greek uh, apostate Jews, stepped forward, and he said, I'll do it. He didn't have any problem with it. He had already apostatized. Many Jews did just that. They figured it was better to be apostate and alive than to be dead and orthodox. And so they caved, and they became Hellenized. Well, one of these Hellenistic Jews stood up and said, I'll do it. He went up to the officer. He grabbed the knife from the officer and approached the altar. And as he did, Mattathias drew his sword out of his tunic, and he thrust through the Jew and killed him, the apostate Jew. And then his five sons, Mattathias had five sons, uh, John, Simeon, Judah, Eliezer and Jonathan, those five sons, drew their swords and turned on those troops sent by Antiochus. And the battle was over in minutes, and all of the Antiochus' soldiers were dead. And then Mattathias and his sons led the way in destroying that altar, destroying the sacrifice, cleaning it up, and then Mattathias and his sons, because they were wanted men, went off into the hills in hiding. But that began a prolonged season of guerrilla warfare against Antiochus and all of the Syrian troops. For a year they fought, they attacked Syrian outposts, they attacked Syrian troops and camps, they attacked Syrian soldiers wherever they found them, and they were incredibly victorious in this. Within a year, Mattathias died, and he turned the leadership of his army over to his son Judah, who had the nickname the Maccabee. Now some of this is starting to sound familiar. He had the nickname the Maccabee. The Maccabee means the hammer. Now that is a cool nickname, is it not? The hammer? 
How would you like to have that as your nickname? I had a lot of nicknames in school. None of them were that cool. I always wondered, where were my friends? They didn't name, name me the Hammer, but that's a cool name. That's what Maccabee means, the Hammer. Judah, or Judas Maccabee, was Judah the Hammer. And Mattathias' decision to turn the leadership of this rebel army over to Judas Maccabee was one of the best decisions that he made. For the next two years, Judas Maccabee, this is called the Maccabean Revolt. And by the way, you can get all the details of this in two books which are written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not Scripture. They should not be regarded as scripture, but they are pretty reliable historical accounts of the events surrounding this, first and second Maccabees. So Judas Maccabee led his army in all of this, this rebel activity for the next two years, and they, they had some of the most incredible military victories you can imagine. They were a rebel army that defeated Syrian troops that were at sometimes 13 times their size, armies 13 times their size. They viewed this as the providential sovereign hand of God, giving them victory over their enemies under the most incredible of circumstances. Antiochus did everything he could to put down this revolt, and he could not be successful. He could not win any victory, and eventually he was forced to flee the land of Israel with his troops. And Judah Maccabee and his men decided that they would go to Jerusalem, and they did. And when they got to Jerusalem, what they saw in the temple was almost a sight that they could not bear. All of the pigs' entrails were still scattered all over the temple. The blood was there. The image of Zeus was still hanging in the temple. And the weeds had grown up through the pavement because no Jew had walked in there for almost three years. And so Judah Maccabee led an effort to cleanse that temple, and they did. They rebuilt the doors. They rehung the curtains. They made all of the furniture anew, afresh again, and put it back in the temple. And on the 25th day of Kislev, on Antiochus's birthday, three years to the day that Antiochus set up the abomination of desolation, the Jews rededicated the temple. That is what they celebrate in the Feast of Dedication this rededication of the temple. Let me read to you 1 Maccabees chapter 4. And once again, this is not scripture, but this is the Maccabees' description of what happened there and the celebration. On the 5 and 20th day of the ninth month, which is called the month Kislev, in the 148th year, they rose up betimes in the morning and offered sacrifice according to the law upon the new altar of burnt offerings which they had made. Then all the people fell upon their faces, worshiping and praising the God of heaven, who had given them good success. And so they kept the dedication of the altar eight days and offered burnt offerings with gladness and sacrificed the sacrifice of deliverance and praise. They decked also the forefront of the temple with crowns of gold and with shields and the gates and the chambers they renewed and hanged the doors upon them. Thus was there very great gladness among the people for that the reproach of the heathen was put away. Moreover, Judas and his brethren with the whole congregation of Israel ordained that the days of the dedication of the altar should be kept in their season from year to year by the space of eight days from the five and twentieth day of the month of Kislev with myrrh and gladness. So Judas Maccabee instituted the Feast of Dedication, which was an eight-day celebration to memorialize a number of different things. First, God's care of them and his preservation of his people through some of the darkest times in their history. And the military success and the spiritual success and the cleansing of that temple and the rededicating of, of worship and the temple to the God of Israel. That's what those eight days are for. Hanukkah begins the first day of an eight-day celebration. Now, you have seen the menorah, right? The nine-candlestick the, the nine candle that is unique to Hanukkah. It's a Jewish symbol, but it's not a Jewish symbol that is used on every holiday. It's a Jewish symbol that is unique to the celebration of Hanukkah. Uh, those nine candles, one of them is what they call the shamash, or the servant candle. That's interesting. Even in the Jewish man-made feast, there are a lot of messianic overtones. It's interesting, they would create a feast, and then even in the worship and the dedication of this feast and all the stuff that comes attached to it, there are these symbolisms that you can just tie all the way through the Old Testament. 
But anyway, one of those candles, the shamash, the servant candle, is used to light all of the other eight. And they light one candle the first day, two candles the second day, three candles the third day. And they usually put this menorah in the front window or near the front of their house in order to symbolize the light of God's truth, the light of God's covenant, the light of God's faithfulness in the midst of a very spiritually dark time and God's preservation of them. Now, that's Hanukkah. Now, I don't want to get into all of the modern-day celebrations of Hanukkah because I really not, I'm not interested that you know that by heart, but that you know the history of what was significant and what they were celebrating. Now, now that you have that down, let's finish with the setup of this, and then I will show you why this colors our understanding of the rest of this passage. Verse 22 was the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, John has to tell us that it was in Jerusalem, and you know why? Because Hanukkah was not one of those feasts where everybody had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Hanukkah was a feast, it was a celebration that took place in the homes all the way throughout the land. So Jesus could have celebrated this in Galilee, in Nazareth, in Bethany, in any place in the land of Israel. He could have observed Hanukkah. But he didn't. He came to Jerusalem, and John tells us that, so that we know Jesus was nowhere else but in Jerusalem when this happened. And not only was he in Jerusalem, he was in the temple. In fact, he was in the temple, walking in the temple, in the portico of Solomon. The portico of Solomon was a large covered area which ran up the eastern side of the temple, It was called the Portico of Solomon because it was likely, or it was said to be, the only remaining part of the original temple that Solomon built. And it had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 597 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. The only thing that remained from that original Solomonic temple was this portico. It was a large roofed area held up by these massive columns. It was where rabbis would hold school. They would have classes there. The rabbis would meet there. It was a covered area. And John says that it was winter, and that might explain why Jesus was walking under the covered area. It was the rainy season. It might have been cold. Jesus is protecting himself from the elements. So he's walking in the portico of Solomon when these Jews gather around him. Now that's the setup. It's at the Feast of Dedication. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he's not just in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. Now why is all of that significant? Let me give you three things that sort of, uh, from our context here, that this sheds light onto. All of this information sheds light. I know this is a lot of historical stuff to go over, and I've gone over it kind of quickly. I think some of you enjoy it. Some of you enjoy it. Others of you maybe not so much. But listen, this this just, watch what happens. This is just amazing. First, there is a prophetic significance to what has transpired here and what we're reading. Now, I don't think, and I'm not going to spend too long on this, because I don't think the Jews who uh, who were standing there that day would have understood this prophetic significance. But from the vantage point of history, we can As I said before, Antiochus was a precursor, a prefigure, a shadow of an Antichrist who was to come. Now, some people would believe that all of that regarding the Antichrist was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed by the Roman uh, emperor uh, Nero and his troops, uh, Titus and his troops, and they would say that Nero was the Antichrist. I don't agree with that. My position is that there is still yet a future Antichrist that is going to persecute the nation of Israel in a future temple, which will be rebuilt. They're making preparations for that now. I believe that all of that has a future prophetic fulfillment. But you have Antiochus, who is a foreshadow of an Antichrist who is to come. Antiochus declared himself to be God. The Antichrist who is to come will declare himself to be God. Antiochus set up an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped as God. The Antichrist who is to come will set up for himself an image in the temple and declare himself to be God and demand worship. The Antichrist who is to come will persecute the Jewish people, and the Antichrist who is to come will find himself put down and utterly destroyed, and the Antichrist who is to come will will desire to eradicate the Jewish religion. All of those things Antiochus did. So Antiochus is sort of a precursor of an Antichrist to come. In fact, when that Antichrist comes, listen, what he will do to the Jewish people will make what Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jewish people look like a Sunday school by picnic by comparison. And that Antichrist which is to come will make 
Antiochus Epiphanes look like Florence Nightingale by comparison. Because there are tough times coming, Scripture says, for that Jewish nation. What did they ask Jesus in the temple? Are you the Christ? Now here, I think, is the very interesting prophetic element to this. When the Antichrist who is to come, comes and does what to the Jewish people, what Antiochus did before Christ came, it will not be a rebel army that will put him down, but it will be their Messiah who will come back and deliver them from extinction, from the brink of distinction by his return in judgment. So they are sitting there celebrating Antiochus. And the one who will deliver them from the future Antiochus is right there in the temple, declaring himself to be the Christ and their deliverer. Second, there is a shepherding significance to this. As I told you, the Feast of Dedication was a celebration and remembrance of God as our deliverer, our great shepherd, our caregiver, the one who is our covenant-keeping, oath-keeping God who keeps his word. He delivers his people. He preserves those who are his and keeps those who are his. And now look what Jesus says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you see the theme that he is? He is taking themes from their celebration of the Feast of Dedication and saying, this is what you are celebrating God doing, this is what I do for those who are mine. I keep them, I deliver them, I keep my promises to them, I preserve them, I secure those who are mine. Third, there's another significant element to this. What was what was it that Antiochus did in the temple, other than offering the pig and, and desecrating it with the pig's blood? He declared himself to be manifest God in the Jewish temple. Now, do you think it is any accident that Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one? Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The last person to stand in the Jewish temple and declare that he was God was Antiochus Epiphanes. And here is Jesus of Nazareth standing in the Jewish temple declaring himself to be God. And they would have none of it, none of it, And they wanted stones. What better way to honor and celebrate Hanukkah than to stone a blasphemer in the temple? In their view, Jesus was doing in the temple the exact same thing that Antiochus had done almost 200 years earlier. He was blaspheming by claiming to be God in the temple. Now imagine this. This is the most offensive thing that Jesus could do. Do you think that his claim to be God in the Jewish temple during Hanukkah was an accident? It was not an accident. It was intentional. Why do you think he went to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah? Why do you think he went to the temple to celebrate Hanukkah? There is nothing that Jesus did, no matter how insignificant, which is, which is without purpose or that is accidental. All of this was intentional. Why? So that he could, in their presence, in the most offensive manner possible, declare himself to be God in the very temple where Antiochus had declared himself to be God. Jesus was not after tactfulness. He was after truthfulness. Because these people had to know that he was their God. And they had to embrace him as such because he told them, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins and you will perish everlastingly. And he presented them with that truth. In their mind, he had done the same thing that Antiochus had done. And they were going to stone him for it. 
But Jesus did this so that they would embrace him as Savior and Lord. He told them the truth. He wasn't after tactfulness. He was getting right to the heart of the issue. You must believe that I am God. Now, the Jews are absolutely without excuse for ignoring this and for not believing. Because both Antiochus and Jesus had claimed to be God in the Jewish temple. Both of them had claimed to be God. But Jesus was Epiphanes. Jesus was the manifest God. Antiochus was not. But Jesus was. And Jesus gave them all of the words and all of the works and all of the deeds that he needed to do to demonstrate that he indeed was God and that he was God visiting his temple. Not this time for the purpose of blasphemy, but this time for the purpose of being worshipped as their God. Isn't that incredible? Just that one little phrase, the Feast of Dedication. You understand the history of that? And all of a sudden it makes you look at the rest of the passage and you go, wow, that's cool, isn't it? This is one of the many reasons I love God's Word. It kind of opens it up. Now, next week, Lord willing, we will handle their question and Jesus' diagnosis of their unbelief. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that history is indeed interesting to us because it, it serves to show us how you work in history, how you keep your promises, how you preserve your people. And that encourages us because we know that you are a promise-keeping God. And those who you have saved and sanctified and secured in your Son will indeed see your face and glorify and honor you. We thank you for Christ who is our God, who is worthy of our worship, our praise, our adoration. We thank you for what he has done to save us and to secure us. It is the joy of your people to bow their knees, uh, bow their knees before Christ, who is the meter of all of our needs, the one who has secured us, and to praise him. We thank you, O precious Father, for your precious Son and for your precious Spirit who dwells within us and has brought us new life. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.